Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 9, verses 18 through 32. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Thank you, God, for all of your gifts and all of your grace. And we know from this, this your word, we know from the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, that you want to communicate with us. May by your grace that happen this morning. And may your word bear fruit. Amen. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Fully awake. This is a, a part of a mini-series of sermons on how we become awake, awakened to the love and life of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And certainly the disciples' process of becoming awake to who Jesus was was a gradual process. I mean, they'd been with Jesus for a while, and now Jesus is popping the question. 
who do people say that I am? It's actually a pretty good place to start because some distinctions almost always have to be made. When someone is popular, when they're a celebrity, people tend to have opinions about them. And Jesus is extremely well-known throughout the world. Not everyone knows him real well, but he's, uh, he's a, a name that people recognize. And already, at this point in the story, probably there wasn't a person in all of Palestine that didn't know something about Jesus and consequently formed an opinion about him. And we tend to form opinions that fit with our reality. And so uh, in that situation, there were those who compared him with John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And historically, that's also often what happens. And so the Buddhists will, f- will make Jesus into sort of, a, sort of a Buddha. Or the Muslims will take Jesus and make him into a prophet like Muhammad. And you know, in the early church, there were the Gnostics in the second and third centuries, a particular spirituality or theology that actually created some of those Gnostic Gospels maybe you've heard of. It takes Jesus and fits him into a Gnostic sort of mentality that pretty much denies Jesus' lordship and being a part of the physical world, for example. So we tend to fit Jesus into our own pictures of things. And so the next question is really important. It really is important for us when he turns to his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? I don't know about you, but I want to hear it from those who knew him, who spent years with him, who witnessed not only his death, but his resurrection. And after that, he continued to talk about who he was and the kingdom of God. Those are the people that I want to pay a special attention to. Well, it isn't the sort of situation where the disciples are going back and thinking, okay, yeah, when did he talk about himself? What lecture was that? What, what parable? When did he tell us who he was? Because being a disciple, a student of Jesus, isn't like that. A lot of it is sort of, well, to use the one hat we put on, it's detective work. We put two and two together. We read between the lines. We read his parables. We have our own experiences. And Peter found himself saying, you're the Messiah. That the Messiah was to the, the promised anointed one, the Savior King of Israel. And that's quite a promotion from being a rabbi to being a prophet, which many people thought he was, to now being the Messiah, the promised Savior King of Israel. And Jesus agreed that that's one of the hats that he wears. He's the Messiah, the promised Savior King of Israel. Now, he tells the disciples not to say anything because people are going to have the wrong idea. Even Peter had the wrong idea. Now, Luke is really generous when it comes to Peter. Mark, not so much. Mark throws him under the bus. And that's okay because uh, tradition tells us that, that Peter was one of the primary sources for Mark's gospel. And so Peter says, okay, that's okay. Go ahead and throw me under the bus. Tell them what happened. And what happened is that when Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter said, no, that can't happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Like I said, Luke didn't want to throw Peter under the bus, even though Peter said to Mark, go ahead. 
We can have the right word, but the wrong understanding. And that's even true today. I feel like I'm continually learning who Jesus is. And, uh, and that's good because I haven't, gra- I don't know about you, but I haven't graduated from being a student or disciple of Jesus. It's ongoing. My understanding is evolving. Hopefully over the ne- last 19 years, in fact, I know over the last 19 years, my understanding of Jesus and of the Father and the Spirit has evolved and grown. But that's not all he is. Going back to Casey's um, children's message, being a Messiah is not the only hat that Jesus wears. After his resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's not just Jesus Christ, Christ being the, the, the Greek word for Messiah. He's not just Jesus the Messiah. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord over, not only over everyone and over everything, but over everything in heaven and on earth. That's a major promotion. Okay, that's a huge promotion. Of course, he's not being promoted. That's who he is. But in our thinking, that's a huge promotion. Chuck has a hat on. Speaking of hats, get that hat from uh, Joel, right? Jesus is my boss. Yeah, that's right. And it ends up that Jesus is the boss. He is all authority in heaven and on earth. He wears other hats as well. He, uh, he is a teacher. He's still a teacher. I mean, we're disciples, right? A disciple needs a teacher, and he wants to teach us. He's a healer. He wants to heal us. It won't happen completely in this life, and even people who were healed in that day and age eventually got sick and died. But I know I've experienced healing at many different levels in my life. He's our deliverer, our rescuer. There was Peter who <laughs> stepped out of that boat in faith and walked towards Jesus and then suddenly looked at the storm as we are prone to do, be aware of the storm, and began to sink. And Jesus rescued him. I know I've been rescued again and again. He's our pastor, our shepherd. The word pastor means shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep. He's the leader of the church. He's the leader, you know, the one that we actually follow, and he promises to lead us, all of us. One of the most uh, beautiful and profound descriptions of Jesus that we find in the Bible is found in, uh, in Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now that's a mouthful. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
So he's amazing. He's astounding. And he's in the thick of everything. So what makes that possible? That he could be and do all those things? Well, I think we have a sense of that um, in our reading for today. So Peter, James, and John, the sort of inner circle of the disciples, join Jesus as they go up on a mountain to pray. And suddenly, Jesus' clothing becomes this lightning light, bright and radiant. Okay. And then Moses and Elijah show up. And, and what we have going on here isn't just an epiphany. You know, an epiphany is, well, we have a whole season of a church here called Epiphany. It's, it's sort of a a revelation, a eureka moment. Wow. And so, yeah, in, in, in the season of Epiphany, we, have, uh, we celebrate the fact that the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone, for all the nations. But this isn't just an epiphany. It's a theophany. A theophany is when God himself shows up and reveals himself. And Moses and Elijah had had that experience on a mountain, each of them. Not as directly as this, but they had an experience of seeing some aspect of God. So here is Jesus with that, that brilliance, that brilliance of the divine. See, this isn't just the Son of God. This is God the Son who's right in the middle of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God. As John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So like I said, he is in the thick of everything. He's in the thick of creation. He's in the thick of God. He's in the thick of God's people. He's in the thick of our relationship. He's in the thick of the suffering and messes of our lives. That's what the cross reminds us of. He's in the thick of all that happens within me and is happening in me right now. And it's no wonder that we can only gradually become awakened I mean, it's one thing to have that information, and it may even be something that I've just shared with you that I say, well, yeah, I didn't know that. That's just information. Then there's illumination, when we really become awakened to it, and awakened to it in a way that actually changes us, transforms us. And that's the idea that gradually, very gradually, we will become awakened. Oh, you are that amazing, and I want to follow you. You see, the reason we want to follow Jesus is because he knows everything about everything. Right? I mean, if you had the opportunity to, to be a, the student, the disciple of someone who knows everything about everything, including who you are, how you were designed to be, what it means to be fully human, what it means to be fully alive, of course you'd want to be that person's student. Because that's the door to everything else that matters. So how does that happen? How do we become awakened to the life of the sun? Well, here we come into a paradox. And it's a paradox. You know, there's a lot of paradoxes. It's like you know, there being three persons, one God. I don't grasp that. But, but, it, but it's a truth. It's a paradox. Another paradox has to do with this, this seeming contradiction between, on the one hand, the kingdom of God is this place that just, wel that just welcomes people. You know, without any conditions. 
And there's this thing called the cost of discipleship. In fact, this uh, tension or this paradox um, is displayed several chapters later in Luke. And I mention this passage because it has similarities to our current passage. So what what Jesus does is he, uh, he tells a parable. It's a parable about a rich guy who invited a bunch of other rich guys uh, for, for a banquet. And one of them says, you know, actually, I just bought some property. I want to make sure, I'm going to go check it out. Another person says, well, I just bought some new oxen. And I just want to make sure they're in good health, that they're okay. And another one says, well, I just got married. You know, what can I say? And, and uh, the guy who's going to throw the banquet is just angry. He t- sends the servants out into the highways and byways and says, I want you to go and get anyone who's willing to come. And so the servants bring the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. And it's a picture of the kingdom of God that is so welcoming, so embracing. But then, in the very next passage, Jesus says, or or Luke says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to him. And he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's not normally a passage you preach on on Mother's Day. (laughs) And for good reason. So what is Jesus doing? What is he talking about here? Of course, he's not talking about hating our families. There's other passages where he says, some of you are coming up with rules that are preventing you from caring for your families. Those rules don't matter, Those, they, or they don't count in the kingdom of God. What he's talking about is himself. He says, if you only knew how important I am and who I am and what I can do for you and your families. But there is this tension. And I'm not going to resolve the tension. One way of thinking about it is it costs nothing to enter God's kingdom and to become a disciple. You know, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't cost anything to become a disciple. If you have debts, Jesus says, I'm paying your debts. All of your spiritual debts are paid. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. So it doesn't cost anything to become a disciple, but it costs everything to be a disciple. It costs everything to be a disciple because everything needs to change. Everything needs to be seen in a new light, even our understanding of God, as we saw, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son a couple of weeks ago. So what does that look like in real life? Well, let me share the story of a mother. Her name is Amy. 27 years ago, Amy Odell founded a school in Roswell, Georgia called Jacob's Ladder. She began the school to make a better life for her youngest child, Jacob. He had been born with such a sweet and beautiful spirit, but such a broken body and mind, she says. He was diagnosed with pervasive developmental delay and was basically given a life sentence. I was told to adjust to the reality of the disability and try to get pregnant again and hope for a better child. It's still really painful to remember those words. Where experts declared little hope for any change in her son, Amy saw a soul fighting to be seen. There was something in his eyes. I couldn't let it go. Home life became a struggle. 
Her husband's job only took in about $3,000 a year. And with her only working part-time, she wasn't able to add very much to their income, while Jacob's needs became more and more demanding. Things came to a head one day when Amy dropped off 15-month-old Jacob at a daycare center. She paused outside the window. She watched as he struggled to hold himself upright. Each time Jacob turned his head upon being released by a caregiver, he toppled over. Something twisted inside Amy. She watched as the workers moved on and Jacob ceased crying. Perhaps she suspected Jacob had decided that if his mother was leaving him and the cry didn't work, he was going to sit and be quiet until she came back. He'd gone into a shell, she says, shuddering at the memory. Amy turned around and picked Jacob up then and there, placing him on her hip and leaving, then drove to her job and quit her job. She pursued certification in neurodevelopmental growth and intervention, studying programs around the country, working with Jacob eight hours a day and reading all she could about brain injury and rehabilitation. When Jacob was five, Amy and her husband decided they could no longer keep their marriage together. And with that finality, Amy moved to Atlanta, Georgia. While she knew no one in this big city, she sensed that hope for her son could be built here. She began to do seminars based upon what she'd been learning and, ex and experiencing with her son. Free seminars. And as more families participated, she decided to start charging for evaluations. These evaluations were novel at the time, pairing an intensive interview with quantitative electroencephalogram brain scans and then designing a custom program for each child and family. As her business grew, Amy began hiring licensed experts in different fields to join her. At the time, neuroscientists didn't know what we know now about the brain, the brain being plastic, that it's able to change. She says, we do two trainings for staff at Jacob's Ladder, training in the hope, truth, and love methodology and training in the science methodology. When you apply both and you do it so very consistently, the brain responds and stretches into new terrain. We don't waste a moment of a child's day, Amy says. We expect our staff to learn what it means to be a vessel and pour into another human being whatever self-sacrifice. We may not hit it every day, all day, but just trying to do it daily makes a difference. As success stories have multiplied and Amy's public credibility has grown, parents throughout the globe are trying to take advantage of her methods. Amy says, as truth is revealed in the day-to-day -day moments of life and in the interchanges in relationships that surround me, I'm always awestruck at how the grace of God works. This attitude is not for lack of suffering. One of the greatest gifts about having Jacob was that it completely crushed the illusion that I have control in my life. I was completely brought to my knees in the midst of that fear to see that for me personally, and my life personally, it was an opening to knowing there is a power much greater than myself that I can rely on. So rather than seeing my fear, I put the fear into action, and the action is called love. This is the story God gave me. He authored it, and I've done my best to walk it out. So Amy had to let go of the picture of family that she'd had. 
She had to sacrifice that in order to give herself to the family she actually had. And that looked very, very different from her dreams and expectations. And so, yes, following Jesus can look very, very different depending upon our life, our calling, and our life circumstances. But almost always following Jesus, being a student of Jesus, who again knows us better than we know ourselves, and wants to use everything, even the things he doesn't want for our lives. He wants to use everything to help us become that person that is the key to being fully alive. But it always, almost always involves something that is sometimes referred to as placing it on the altar. And some of you may remember that experience of, of uh, Abraham, who, you know, you know he, he obeyed God, sort of. Um, certainly when God said, I want you to leave your land and go to a new place, and I'm, you know, I want to make of you many nations, um, and I want to bless you and bless other nations through you, he, he left that land. But he was supposed to go without his family and ended up taking Lot along. And he was supposed to stay in land, but when there was a famine, remember the famine that happened to that young son a couple of weeks ago? He decided to leave the land and go to Egypt. And then he, you know, he tried to pawn off his wife as his sister and, and really jeopardized the whole enterprise of God using the womb of his wife to produce a new nation. So anyway, it's kind of messy. And finally, God gives him this test. He says, uh, Abraham, I want you to take your son. By this point, his son Isaac had been born. And I want you to take your son, the one that you love, and I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and place him on the altar. And so he did. He walked the three days to Mount Moriah, had his son carry the wood, and when his son said, Father, here's the wood, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, the Lord will provide. And when his hand was up in the air with that knife, the angel of the Lord said, stop. Now I know to whom you have given your complete allegiance. Of course, our father, the one that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, didn't stop. He didn't stop people from torturing him, flaying his flesh, the flesh of his son. He didn't stop them from killing and executing him on that cross for us and for the sins of the world. But that picture, is, as excruciating as it is, has sometimes been helpful. Helpful in thinking about, is there something in my life that I need to place on the altar if I am to really give myself to living and walking with Jesus. And maybe something comes to mind right now, and you may be thinking, oh Lord, not that, not that. Most, if not all of you know that um, I'll be retiring in August. And it's been really a roller coaster. It's been a tough week. It was uh, last Saturday, 
Saturday evening, I was sitting in my living room and thinking, you know, in a few months, you won't be thinking about preaching on Sunday. Now, for some preachers, that's a very good prospect, okay? But not this one. I had, I had lunch uh, a few years ago with a colleague who's my age. He retired a few years ago. He said um, he, he's living in Hall in Michigan where there's a lot of retired ministers. And he said, you know, I, I found there are two kinds of, of, of pastors and how they experience retirement, especially in the first months and years. There are those who really enjoyed being a pastor but didn't enjoy preaching. They do really well when they retire. And then there are those who really love preaching, and it's tough. It's really tough. In fact, I was just talking with, uh, with a woman not too long ago whose husband this year retired. I said, how's he doing? She says, well, you know, not having that weekly rhythm has been really hard. And something caught in my throat a week ago, thinking, ah, I'm not ready to stop preaching. I love preaching. You know how I know I love preaching? It's because it's so hard. And sometimes I feel really miserable. I don't know a pastor, I don't know any pastor that doesn't crash on Sunday afternoon emotionally. And it's because that happens and I still love doing it that I know that I love it. And so that's tough. That's real hard. I also know it's a very strong sense. In fact, the words that came to me this week, I can remember where I was. Is this is my opportunity to go deeper into the life of Jesus. And I sense the call of that. So that's just an example. Is it, does anything come to mind for you this morning? Now, sometimes we may end up having to actually sacrifice it. There can be things in our lives, for example, that just aren't good for us. <laughs> they, they just, they just, they're not good for us physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. It's time to let them go, to break off a relationship with that thing, sometimes even a person. We just should do that. And it's hard. It can be costly. It can be painful. And at least we can say, well, at least it's not as bad as dying on a cross. And then there are things which, like what happened with Abraham, we place it on the altar, and instead of having to let it go, we need to alter our understanding and relationship with that thing. Our perspective needs to change. And so often by changing that perspective and choosing to relate to that thing, that relationship, or whatever, in a healthier way, in a way that has the sort of balance that's appropriate, we end up loving that thing and relating to that thing or that person or that relationship even better. So sometimes we have to let it go and sometimes we place it on the altar and what's altered is our perspective, our relationship to make way for walking and living with Jesus. If I can offer one bit of advice, and I will be offering very little of that for, your, for this congregation going forward, you have to decide what you want your future to be but this is going to help you decide. It's the activity that was the most, uh, it's the thing that Jesus did most during his life. And we can think of healing, we can think of teaching, but the thing he did more than anything else was pray. And so our passage begins with prayer. 
Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? In fact, probably it was in the midst of that praying to his father that his father said, it's time. Pop the question. Ask them who others think and who they themselves think. And then at the end of our passage, we're told that Peter and James and John went up on the mountain with Jesus to pray. And so there was private prayer, personal prayer, and then there was praying with others. This is the, this is the, um, this is the practice that comes with a promise. Let me just sh share the passage that contains the promise. It's Deuteronomy 29. 11 through 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Like I said, this is a practice that comes with a promise. If you seek me with all of your heart, if you come and pray to me, personally, corporately, and, and you know, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to have a disciple-teacher relationship with Jesus and all the hats that he wears, talking with him is what makes sense, and that's really what prayer is. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And it wasn't just talking at Jesus. I'm sure they were t it was both ways. There was listening. There was their talking to him. That can be hard to listen, to wait long enough to hear. And of course, because he's in the midst of everything, the thick of everything, and everything is at his disposal, he can use anything and everything to speak to us. I know this decision came in part for us because of something I heard that I wrote down a couple of weeks ago. And we usually don't have to depend simply on something we hear. There's usually confirmations of that. And, uh, and so pray. And it's costly to pray, you know? It, it, it's, there's faith that's required, time that's required. And and the willingness to sort of put our hands on the pile and say, Lord, I will continue to talk with you and listen to you. And so that's just a bit of advice that I'm actually trying to practice myself, but also want to share with you. And it comes with a, with, with a promise. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will come to me and, and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you, when you seek with all your heart. He so wants to live and walk with us. He so wants to use everything to help us become the unique, fully alive sons and daughters he himself made us to be. And so is there anything that you sense you're to put on the altar this morning? Maybe something you're to let go. Or maybe it's your perspective that needs to be altered to make more way, more room for Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Let's talk to God.
Lord Jesus, there's a word that we haven't used yet this morning. A word that describes what you had to do to become our teacher and Lord. But it's also something we have to do to become your students and disciples. It's the word surrender. Not just surrendering a part of our lives. Not just that thing that we put on the altar. But our entire lives. Just like you did for us. Because that's what love does. It's daunting, but it's also exciting to be able to set out on this adventure of trusting you for everything and seeking only to do your will because it's that good. You are Lord of everything, the one in whom everything is held together. And so we know we can bring everything to you, not with the expectation that you will change everything in our lives, in our lives but that you will use everything and give us all that we need to learn and to grow. Thank you for helping Lori Russell this week, for how much more alive she feels. May you continue to help her as she adjusts her diet and her life to accommodate this disease called diabetes. Thank you for your healing and the many ways you use to heal us and give us life. We continue to pray for Ray, Alan, Gerlinda, Wayne, and Patty. We pray for BRC. We thank you that you have a future plan for her. We continue to pray for how COVID has affected our entire world and for all that needs to happen for it to be brought under control. King of kings and Lord of lords, be our leader and rescuer and healer. And in everything, we pray for your kingdom to come our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever